Good morning, everyone. I thought we would reflect uh, today, All Saints Day, on the, everyone in the church who brought us the Bible. I thought that might be a good group of saints. And we'll focus a lot on the Bible this morning. You know, the Bible is still the best-selling book in human history. Besides that, it is the most read and most discussed book in human history. And besides that, it is also the most controversial book in human history, right? The Bible has adoring, devoted fans who say that its wisdom has literally saved their life. Others uh, fans say it ended slavery in the West. Others point out that it has formed the basis of more than one governmental system of laws and thoughts about morality and the basis for some of the most generous charities in the world. However, the Bible also has ardent detractors who say that it is responsible for most of the hate and violence in the world, that it actually prolonged the practice of slavery for an extra 200 years, and that it is responsible for much superstition and plain old ignorance. So what is the Bible really? First of all, I want to say, and could I have a Bible? I feel so terrible up here talking about the Bible without one. Um, But the Bible, only through the miracle of modern printing, is a book. The Bible in its original form is is not a book. Uh, It is a library, a collection of 66 ancient books and documents. In the Bible, you find laws. Thank you, Charlie. You find laws and histories. In the Bible, you find stories and sayings. In the Bible, you find songs and poems and essays. You find sermons in the Bible. You find letters, some open letters written to entire regions, some personal letters written between individuals. People even wrote down and discussed the contents of their dreams and visions in the Bible. The authors of these 66 ancient documents come from all walks of life. Some of them were peasants. Some of them were fishermen. Some of them were physicians. Some of them were kings. Some were priests. Some were poets. Some were historians. Some were warriors. And some were prison inmates. The Bible's library comes to us in basically two languages. Some of the writings were originally in ancient Hebrew, some in ancient Greek. The writings you hear contained are sometimes even older than the written form. Some of what you read in the Bible was actually told as orally passed stories around campfires up to three or four thousand years old. Some of what you read in the Bible is a letter written from one person to another as late as 100 A.D., The library is also a collected library that people gathered together for themselves. Um, If you talk about the Old Testament, what is the Old Testament? The Old Testament are all the writings which Jewish rabbis read on Friday night in synagogues. That's what the Old Testament is. And Jewish rabbis uh, read the laws and histories of Moses. They read the histories of their the conquest of their promised land, and then the reigns of the kings. They read the wisdom of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Many times a day, they would read the prayers of the Psalms, and they would reflect on the fiery sermons of the prophets. This is what they read on Friday nights. Now, when Rome destroyed the temple in Jerusalem in the year 70 AD, it threw a huge wrench into the works of what Judaism is. So in the city of Jamnia in uh, AD 90, 
rabbis met together and decided to discuss how they would carry on the Jewish faith without a temple. And they agreed, uh, among other things, to keep reading the same 39 writings they had been reading for centuries. And evidently, the Christian church agreed, for we have kept those same 39 writings of the Old Testament ever since. And that's basically how we got our Old Testament. The Old Testament's a very clean story because it was really only popular until um, uh, 2,000 years ago. It was really only popular with one people group who lived in one country, which was smaller than the state of New Jersey. So keeping a reign on the Old Testament was easy. The New Testament, however, is not as clean a story. It was written by a variety of people who were traveling around like nomads over the entire Mediterranean world. So I want to talk about the New Testament in more detail. The New Testament, what we call the New Testament, contains four Gospels. Those are basically the life stories of Jesus. One history book called the Acts of the Apostles. One crazy apocalyptic dream, which you know as the Revelation. And 21 letters. That is the New Testament. Basically, the church passed these around, making copies and sharing them with churches in other uh, parts of the city and in other cities. This process of making copies of these writings and sharing them with other cities began very early. Very early. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes about it happening and recommends it while he's still alive. If you, turn, if you look at uh, Colossians chapter 4, verse 16... Paul writes, after you read this letter, pass it on to the church in Laodicea so they can read it too. And you should read the letter that I wrote to them. So I hear him saying, I could make this letter twice as long, or you could just go get that one I just wrote to this other city and take this one to them. It'll save everyone a lot of time. Now, this business of hand copying letters and distributing them to other cities is one of the things that disturbs us as modern people. Because we've all played that game, you know, where you whisper something in someone's ear and then you whisper it in someone's ear and by the time it gets around, it's radically different than what the original thing was. This, co- this business of hand copying letters and passing them around uh, makes us question the reliability of the New Testament. How do we know these scribes didn't make mistakes? How do we know these scribes didn't add things to the text that suited them? How do we know that they didn't take things out that they didn't like? And the truth is this morning, we know from archaeology, these scribes did make mistakes. We see evidence they did add things to the text to suit them. And they did take things out they didn't like. But hold your horses. Because we have so many copies of the New Testament, between when it was written in the year 1500, we have 5,000 archaeological copies of the New Testament. You can tell when and sometimes where someone accidentally or on purpose tried to make a change. Because the way the Bible was done, the scribe in city A didn't make one copy that went to B, who made one copy that went to C, who made, you know, and so on, so that if B made a change, that it, that change lasts forever. That's not how the Bible was done. The way it was done, they made a variety of copies and sent them to a variety of cities, who made a variety of copies and sent them to a variety of cities. So let's say you have this letter of Paul, and it goes out to cities A, B, C, D, E. But in city B, you have this naughty scribe who either can't copy accurately or decides he'd like to have Jesus say something nicer or meaner about women. 
So scribe B makes a change accidentally or on purpose. Because we have so many copies of the New Testament, the scribes in cities A, C, D, and E aren't likely to make exactly the same mistake or exactly the same change. And so by looking at a variety of documents, you can tell this guy in Egypt, something funny happened right there. So we're going to go with A, C, D, and E on this particular text. And each of them, people make mistakes in this sort of thing, but because we have a variety of documents, you can usually tell when and where changes like that occurred. Now, sometimes changes to the text occurred so early in its transmission that we have equal numbers of two versions, and so even today we can't tell which was the original. But I want to point out to you that very, uh, almost never, almost never do these have theological significance. The changes are things like additions of a single word to make a sentence more clear, Uh, mistakes in copying two words that were spelled similarly, Skipping lines because this line, two lines started with the same word and the scribe's eye just moved to the second word and started. The types of mistakes that anybody might make. What you never find is a version of the New Testament that says Jesus was only human. He was not the Son of God. You never find that. What you never find is a version of any text or letter that says Jesus never did any miracles. What you never find is one that a version of the gospel says Jesus didn't rise from the dead. The core of what it means to be Christian is never lost in these grammatical or copying or even sometimes biased errors that, that have been attempted. So if you're asking me this morning, can scribal copies be trusted to give us a reliable version of the Bible? I have to tell you definitely, yes, they can. Yes, they can. So... Here we have these scribes copying these letters, amazingly accurately, and passing them around. And this is how the Bible begins. They're sending them all over the Roman world. Then, in the year 100 AD, a man named Marcion is born. Marcion is the son of a church leader, but he grows up to be a rich ship owner. He owns ships for shipping, so he's very wealthy, and he's a huge fan of the Apostle Paul. Paul is his favorite. In fact, Marcion loves Paul, and he loves Paul's theology of forgiveness so much that Marcion decides that everything before Paul and every other apostle other than Paul is garbage. He believes that Peter, John, James, and the others have turned away from the God of Jesus, and they've gone running back to a mean old Jewish God. See, Marcion's a bit strange because he believes there are two gods. The Jewish God who created the world a horrible world, and then the God of Jesus who came later to save it. So Marcion runs around trying to start churches where you never read the Old Testament. You only read the Apostle Paul and parts of the Gospel of Luke. He also took out the Christmas story because Marcion thought sex and childbirth were disgusting. We'll get to that in a moment. So Marcion tries to travel around selling his new Paul-only church, but the church does not appreciate Marcion's outlook because, as they rightly notice, Paul was Jewish. Paul's a Jewish rabbi. Paul's not going to hate Jews a whole lot. Also, Paul respected Peter and James and John. He calls them apostles. He submits himself to their authority. So the Marcionite church did not take off. 
And since no one in Marcion's church was allowed to have sex, even if they were married, his church did not last but a few generations. I'm frankly surprised it lasted any generations, but uh, it was gone by 200 AD or 250. So, but it's gone, but the church had to respond to this by drawing up lists of books that should be read in church to make sure no one else tried to throw out Peter or John or Mark. Now, this is the first point we want to make today, that the beginning of making lists to say this is our library was not done to keep books out, as you sometimes hear in pop culture. The beginning of list making was done to keep books in, to preserve the scriptures. Now, on that point, some of you know what I'm about to say already, and you've known it for years, but others of you are going to be quite shocked by this, as I was the first time I heard it. And that is, there were other books traveling around back then about Jesus and the apostles, which are not included in our Bible. Especially by the year 200 AD, there were other books with titles like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Judas and the Acts of Peter and Andrew, the Acts of John. There's a Gospel of Mary Magdalene. There were other books traveling around back then. Now, if you watch movies like The Da Vinci Code or read the book or some History Channel documentaries which get re-aired constantly every year, you will get the impression that there is a big conspiracy, that church bishops got into a room and decided to keep certain books out of the Bible. Because these books contain some secret knowledge about Jesus that they were trying to suppress. That they were controlling the church by creating the Bible and keeping secrets. That's the story that has traveled, uh, especially on the internet. But I want to tell you from history, there was no such room full of people that contained all the bishops talking about the Bible until 787 A.D., what they did have was these regional lists. A bishop of Rome would say, well, here's what everybody in Rome is reading. And a bishop in Egypt would say, well, here's what all the churches in Egypt are reading. So when they drew up these lists in the second century, and it doesn't include the Gospel of Thomas, how did they know to leave out the Gospel of Thomas? How did they know that Luke was a traveling companion of Paul, so you can trust what he says about Paul? But this one that calls itself the Gospel of Thomas, that was not written by Thomas the Apostle, Doubting Thomas, you know, as we call him. How did they know which ones to keep and which ones to leave out? And the answer to that is because they were much closer to these documents than we are now. You have to remember that the apostles, the people who walked with Jesus and heard what Jesus said, they were alive until 60, 70, some of them 90 A.D. Uh, their disciples, so the ones who learned directly from the apostles, that generation was probably alive until A.D. 120, 130, 140. So that by 200 A.D., when these other books are traveling around, we are only three generations from the apostles, the folks who walked with Jesus and heard what he taught themselves. So when this, these third-generation Christians look at something called the Acts of Peter and Andrew, they can more easily say, Jesus never said that. And Peter never told a story like that. This is something that's come up recently. 
Now, if some of you doubt that someone can become so studied in a particular subject matter that they can immediately look at it and spot fakes and later additions, I'd like to show you the power of a niche expert. And I'd like to welcome at this time to the stage Scott Casey and Ken Bledsoe. Come on down. Gentlemen, you were given a Star Wars quiz at the beginning, and I am astonished both by your obscure knowledge and ability to spell these things correctly. <laughs> Nian Nun, N-I-E-N, capital N-U-N-B. Well done. Well done. <laughs> and uh, Minoc and, and Duback. Well done. All right. So, uh, gentlemen, you're here to demonstrate the power of an expert. Now, uh, you know, but they don't all know, that uh, George Lucas's Star Wars came out in 1978, uh, Empire Strikes... 77, thank you. Sorry, I was in Parsons, Kansas. I don't think we saw it till 78. Okay, so... <laughs> 77, yes, thank you. 80 for the Empire and 83 for Jedi. Great. Uh, after that, in 1997, Lucas re-released something called the Star Wars Special Edition, in which scenes were changed, little digital special effects were added. Now, I'm going to guess from this that these gentlemen, if you show them a one to two second clip of the scene, they'll be able to tell you, and let me get you a couple microphones, they'll be able to tell you whether this is a special edition from 97 or the original version from the late 70s, early 80s. So if you gentlemen would like to turn and face the screen, you're just going to have a second or two to make your determination. Just say into the mic, special edition or original. Are you ready? Okay, let's see our first one. What is thy bidding, my master? Special. Special edition. Okay, why? Uh, it's, the, it's a different actor there for the emperor. Yeah, a different actor from the emperor. You all knew that, right? That was, a, that was an easy one. Let's look at another one. Special. Spe wow, that you, okay, we didn't show you too much. Are you sure? <laughs> yeah, that scene wasn't in the original. That scene wasn't even in the original. <laughs> okay, let's see another one. What do you think? Oh, the bishops are stumped. Who out here knows? Original. Why? The sound. Everyone knows from the special edition, the sound's like... Not, not that sound. <laughs> all right. All right, guys. Okay, let's try another one. What makes it special, Ken? It's just a thing blowing up. It blew up in the first movie. I saw it in the drive-in in Parsons. What? What's enhanced about it? Yeah, it's got a, oh, it's got a ring. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I, we all paid attention to those explosions. Absolutely. All right, let's see another one. Original. Original? What makes it original? It's the music. It's, uh, they used a different soundtrack for the... You are right. Okay. We picked it because they didn't put Hayden Christensen in, but that actually wouldn't decide it, would it? Because the special edition didn't have Hayden Christensen either. Hayden Christensen was added in the 2004 DVD version. Yep. But the music makes it original. Thank you. Okay, let's try it again. 
I think that's special. What makes it special? The do back. Yeah, the, the lizard in the background is moving. Okay, good. Let's try another one. <laughs> yes, I bet you have. Original. Original, why? Han shot first. Han shot first. One of the greatest controversies of our time. All right. I, I think we have another one. We need to know what it is and how to destroy it. It's Rogue One. Wait a minute, what is that? That's Rogue One. It hasn't come out yet. Okay, right, that's from a movie that hasn't come out yet. All right, all right. We have a couple of gift cards for these guys, don't we? Thank you, gentlemen. All right. The point, and I have one. Is it is possible to become such a student of something? And let's be honest, although it pains me to say, uh, Star Wars really doesn't matter that much in the grand scope of the universe. And yet, and yet, there are folks who in a second and a half can tell you if something was added to it 30 years later or not. Now, the Bible does matter a great deal. And the folks who studied this, and, uh, and we may not realize it, but memorized it, not passages, the whole thing back then, uh, they could easily spot if something had cropped up in the last 20 or 30 years in their scriptures. Now, I also want to point out that many of these later gospels and stories contained things so strange, you didn't even have to be an expert in order to spot it. Um, in the infancy gospel of Thomas, it tells the story of the little boy Jesus who's making, who skips out on synagogue to go down to the river to make clay pigeons. Uh, when his father finds him and yells at him, the boy claps his hands and turns the fake pigeons into real pigeons who fly away. Sort of his way to tell off his dad, you know, don't bug me about going to church, I'm God. The, the readers of that story said, uh, I've never heard that story about Jesus until just recently. Uh, in another, uh, Jesus says that women can't go to heaven because how gross would heaven be if it had women in it? B but take heart, Jesus will make them male. Let me just read it to you right from the text. It says, look, I will lead her that I may make her male in order that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who makes herself male will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Gospel of Thomas saying 114. The early church could read this and go, eh. All right. Uh, the gospel of Peter. On Easter morning, Jesus comes out of the tomb and his head nearly touches the sky. He's followed by two equally towering, towering angels and a gigantic talking cross which proclaims that the Messiah is risen. Now, I would think if Christ Zilla came out of the tomb <laughs> and stomped his way through Jerusalem on Easter morning, even writers outside the Bible would have noticed this fact and told us a little something about that. So the fact is, uh, these fakes were easy to spot. You didn't even have to be a Bible-trained expert a century and a half after the real events. So the next time your Facebook feed pops up and says, we've just discovered the Gospel of Judas, uh, realize two things. The Gospel of Judas was discovered in the 1800s, and then go to a website of a university and read the Gospel of Judas yourself, and you'll find enough weirdness there that even you, 2,000 years later, can tell this was not originally a part of the Scriptures. Now, here's the whole truth from history. Um, the way the Bible came together 
was that these letters were being written and copied during a time when nobody cared about Christianity. In the beginning, Christianity was just a religion of women and slaves and peasants. A few rich people would join it, but they were considered lunatics. And so no one cared about the New Testament at the time the letters are being written and copied and sent out. By 200 AD, once the movement is popular enough for people to then try to create fake gospels and acts, the church has already been used to reading certain stories for 150 years. And it's just too late for new stories to come and be accepted. In fact, if you look at these early lists, the first bishop, the question bishops would ask on whether to include something or not is, well, what are the churches already reading? If a church in Egypt and Syria and Turkey and Rome is reading a letter, it's probably been around a while. If Rome is the only church reading this letter, then it probably just cropped up in the last few years right here in Rome. So they would exclude it. And their second criteria was, does it teach us anything weird? Does it teach us anything we've never heard before? And that was their original criteria for making lists. Now, some of you have probably been misled and come to believe that our Bible came from the Emperor Constantine of Rome. You may have heard this story that the Emperor Constantine, in the year 325 uh, A.D., gathered, forced all the bishops of the empire into a room in Nicaea. And there they decided what would be and what wouldn't be in the Bible. This is what the whole movie, The Da Vinci Code, purports. Uh, and this story will circulate within a few months on your Facebook feed. This thing travels around like a bad urban legend about cyanide-laced Halloween candy. So uh, the story continues to circulate. All I can do to help you is just tell you what the history was of Constantine, the Bible, and, and the Council of Nicaea. So here is the story, and uh, you can uh, check this at any, any source you like. Constantine did indeed call the bishops together in 325 AD, but they came together not to discuss the Bible. That did not occur on the agenda. What they came to discuss was the creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ is only Son our Lord, and these sorts of things. They ended up extending that into the Nicene Creed. That was their business. They also wanted to discuss when will we celebrate Christian holidays. So they had this, they wanted all the Christian holidays celebrated on the same date, because Easter over here was celebrated on a different date than Easter over there. What they quickly learned was that dating Easter was very complicated. In fact, uh, in this congregation, I think only my dad and our worship director, Chris Lee, know how Easter is, the date for Easter is set. Is my dad or Chris Lee in the room? Would you shout out to us real quick how Easter is set? Okay. First Sunday after the spring equinox, after the first full moon that follows it. Now, everybody in that council said the same thing you're saying, huh? So here was, their, here was their solution. Tell you what, Athanasius, since you understand it, just send us a letter every year with all the dates, and we'll celebrate it whenever you say. So he did. He started an annual festal letter that would go out and say, here are the dates for Easter and All Saints Day and all the rest. Well, then he started, since it was going to every church, he started using it like a newsletter. And he would include other stuff. Here's your Easter dates. Here's some other news. In his 38th festival letter, that is now 42 years after the council, the Emperor Constantine has now been dead for 30 years, Athanasius said, by the way, here are the 
books of the Bible we recommend reading. And Athanasius' list includes all the 66 books and no others that we read today. That happened in 367 AD. Constantine is long dead. Even this list doesn't decide it because we know from archaeology that other churches are like, "Mm, that's interesting, but we still have to argue about about five of the teeny tiny New Testament books they kept arguing about for another 200 years. So even this letter didn't finally decide it for everyone. But we love his list because it ended up being the one that the church went with. But it had nothing, as you can see, to do with Constantine. In fact, Constantine didn't even like Athanasius very much. He excommunicated him from the church three times. So Athanasius outlived him and came back and finished his job as a bishop. So as you can clearly see from history, um, Constantine did not create our Bible. All of these things you hear circulated on the internet and stuff constantly imply there was a conspiracy. And conspiracy means that someone is trying to gather power from the, for themselves. Was the Bible assembled to give power to the church and to take power from some other group of people? Let's answer that question. Well, everyone, if the Bible was assembled to give power to the church, I'd like to say that they did a terrible job of putting a book together for that purpose. First of all, the New Testament does not push tithing nearly hard enough, the giving of 10% of the income. Um, They did a terrible job at collecting money for the church with New Testament writings. They forgot, if they were trying to collect power, to trick us into worshiping our pastors as agents of God. Instead, they give us a book that tells us that Jesus' first financial supporters were prominent women, and that prominent women were some of the key people in helping Paul start his early churches. They gave us a book that tells us to treat our slaves like they're our brothers, and to remember in the kingdom of God, there is no Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. They gave us a book where church leaders are told they cannot be greedy. They have to have only one wife and they must be faithful to her and they cannot lie. They gave us a Jesus who when he talks about hell, hints about other people, but only says for sure that the one type of person who is definitely going to hell are church leaders who misrepresent God. They give us a book that makes us suspicious of powerful priests and makes the Roman Empire look like pagan tyrants. They give us a book that recommends paying your pastors, but all the pastors it shows us have menial side jobs and don't take a salary from the church. It tells us if you have pastors who won't do anything but wander from house to house preaching and collecting free meals to kick them out of your house. And never forget that those who wrote the Bible copied it, and assembled it, were martyred for their faith. Adhering to Christianity did not bring them power. In many cases, it brought them death. So I don't know who this book has supposedly given such an advantage to in the first century, but as far as I'm concerned, all suggestion that the Bible was created as a power grab is silly and not historical. Here's our last question this morning. Should we trust the Bible? The Bible is not a book. It is a library. Communities of people all over the world produced it, copied it, passed it on, decided its boundaries by consensus. Yet millions of us will make decisions based upon this library's teachings this morning. 
Many of you will make decisions this morning about money, about sexuality, about lying, particularly when your tax forms come around, um, forgiving those who hurt us deeply based on this book. Should we trust this book to guide us on such important matters? That remains a matter of faith. However accurate these documents may be, did God speak to the writers of these documents? That is a matter of faith. Were our spiritual ancestors faithful as they handed this word on to us? That's a matter of faith. Does God protect these scriptures for us? Faith. Did the Holy Spirit work in the church? And does the Holy Spirit still work today in this church, our church, Lakeland Community? Also a matter of faith. Today's message does not prove to you that the Bible is the word of God. And that wasn't our goal. Our goal was to answer this question. Am I a fool to follow the Bible? Is there some secret that's been kept from me proving that this Bible is untrustworthy and only uneducated people follow it? I hope this message today has removed that fear. And if we have, we've done well. By using history, we can see there is no magic bullet you can shoot at the Bible and shatter its credibility. Despite what the internet and your Facebook feed will probably say later this week. It was a matter of faith to follow the scriptures when you came in this morning. It remains a matter of faith as you leave. Everyone, we have three testaments to what God is doing in the world. The creation around you. Go out and observe its complexity. and See what does it say to you. We have these holy texts. Study them. Live by them for a time and see what truth you find in them. And we have what God has done in your own life. Reflect on those experiences. If you don't feel you have any personal experiences with God, I invite you to join us here in this community. You're coming at the very best time of year that you could as we go into the Christmas season in a few months. Uh, Pastor Dan's preaching about some very basic things about God and finances in the weeks to come. That is a great place for the rubber to hit the road on does God provide for us or not. I invite you to join us for this season and see if you can meet him for yourself and see what happens after that. These three proclaim Jesus to you. Let us stand together. We have nature. We have these holy texts. We have what God has done in our life. So on this All Saints Day, let us bring our worship to him and praise him for his word in all its forms. Amen? Let us worship. Father, may we go forth and tell your story of what you have done in our lives and in this world. It is your world and it is a good story. Amen.